Eufy is sponsoring today's video. They reached out to me. I tested out their video lock. It is a game changer. I'm going to paint a picture for you for why I'm so excited to work with them. So you're getting home. Your arms are loaded with groceries or packages or boxes or everything. And your keys are in your pocket. This drives me nuts. This happens all the time. I upgraded to the Eufy video lock. Fingerprint tap i'm inside and honestly i also feel way safer it's got this awesome built-in camera so whether it's a package delivery or late night uber order i see exactly who's there right from my phone there are no more mystery knocks and the best part this thing was such a breeze to set up there's no wires there's no drilling uh, there's also no monthly subscription fees so if you are done fumbling with your keys because i definitely am search for eufy video lock or head over to eufyofficial.com slash video lock your front door, your sanity. I just want to take a second and thank Policy Genius. They're supporting today's episode of Success Story. I know we all have kids. We all have families we want to take care of. And I personally check something off major on my to-do list, life insurance. It's a tough topic. It's really hard to think about, but it's so important. And the hard part was sorting through all the options. Luckily, I found Policy Genius. Policy Genius is an online insurance marketplace that makes getting life insurance surprisingly easy. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Now, knowing my family's protected brings me incredible peace of mind. Don't put off this important decision. Check life insurance off your to-do list in no time with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Welcome to the Success Story Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Clary. On this podcast, I have candid interviews with execs, celebrities, politicians, and other notable figures, all who have achieved success through both wins and losses, to learn more about their life, their ideas, and their insights. I sit down with leaders and mentors and unpack their story to help pass those lessons on to others through both experiences and tactical strategy for business professionals, entrepreneurs, and everyone in between. Without further ado, another episode of the Success Story Podcast. All right. Thanks again for joining me. I am sitting down with Matt Rosetta, who is the founder and CEO of North Six Agency, otherwise known as N6A. Uh, it is one of the leading public relations firms in the United States. Uh, Matt founded the firm out of his basement in 2010 and over the past decade has built N6A into one of the fastest growing PR firms in the United States. Under his leadership, N6A has been named as one of the 50 most powerful agencies in the United States by The Observer. PR Week's Best Places to Work, and as one of Entrepreneurs Magazine's top company cultures in America. To this day, N6A remains 100% founder-owned and operated and has never taken any outside capital. Rosetta is known for uh, being one of the most innovative leaders in the area of public relations, marketing, and corporate culture. He is the leader behind N6A's Pace Points Program, which is the first employee incentive program that enables employees to customize their rewards and the outcome relations model, which has challenged the public relations category head on by aligning PR with KPIs, specific business needs, outcomes, not just high level. So he's really, he's really delivering for brands. Um, Rosetta is the author of two books, The Death of Irrelevant PR, Outcome Relations is the New Public Relations, and Embrace the Pace, the most 100 most exhilarating. Lessons Learned in a Decade of Entrepreneurship. Uh, Rosetta serves on the Board of Trustees at the Marketing Edge and uh, on the Alumni Board of Directors at his alma mater, Iona College. He resides in Westchester County, New York with his wife and three daughters. 
Uh, thank you so much for joining me, Matt. I really appreciate the chat. I'm excited to sort of unpack your career, what you're doing at N6A, and uh, and dive into uh, you know you dive into the book, uh, 100 Most Exhilarating Lessons. I'm a big fan of it, and I like how you framed sort of your experience because every podcast I ask people for life lessons. Um, this is basically a book of life life lessons. Excuse me. But yeah, thanks so much for coming. Yeah, thanks, Scott. I appreciate the background and I've been a big fan of the programs for a long time. So it's an honor, honor to be here. Appreciate, uh, you know, I appreciate you coming on. And, and before we speak about N6A and before we speak about um, some of the, the lessons that you've learned over building one of the best and most profitable and, and fastest growing uh, prolific uh, PR firms in the U.S. and the States, let's speak about your career. So walk me through, uh, walk me through the Matt Rosetta origin story. So, yeah, so just, uh, you know, I grew up about 20 miles or so north of New York City. I went to Mamaroneck High School. Uh, I guess, you know, I would describe my childhood as idyllic. You know, I had two great parents. They complemented each other perfectly. My dad was more of the pragmatic kind of disciplined one, you know, a man of uh, integrity and principles. Uh, My mother was a little bit more of the dreamer. She really taught me had a dream. She was very inspirational. She really believed in me. Uh, and they both together shared an unconditional love and support for me. You know, I had a, a developmentally disabled sister as well. And it was just a great balance of pragmatism and idealism. That was my background. And both parents, you know, were very present in my childhood. Then you throw in my grandparents into the mix, you know, who were also very present in my life, hardworking immigrants, you know, never really uh, spoke our language. They made incredible sacrifices for future generations like myself and parents. Uh, and they were also very present in my, my childhood. Um, we wound up naming our company then after my grandparents, North 6 Agency, after North 6 Avenue, which is the uh, street to which they immigrated. And anyway, it was just a great childhood. You know, it was filled with lots of love, food, support. Um, and it really built a nice foundation for me to dream and to aspire to build something later in life. Obviously, when I launched N6A, um, you know, a lot of that had to do with the lessons and was N6A the first thing you did? Did you work for companies before or were you just like, you know, head first, I want to be an entrepreneur, I'm going to start this and it was successful? Because most entrepreneurs I speak to, they've had a lot of, like, they've screwed up a lot of shit before they get something that works or, you know, they've worked in a company that I can't work for somebody. So what's, what's the story of, you know, your professional background? Yes, yeah, so I got out of, you know, you mentioned I went to Iona College, which was about, you know, which was about five minutes from where I grew up. Got out of college, you know, have, had been used to working hard my whole life. I, mean, I was a, an amateur boxer in college. I worked, you know, multiple jobs throughout college. Uh, so I was kind of used to hard work. And uh, once I graduated, my goal was really to become a sports agent. Matt, by the way, I know you just interviewed a sports agent at CAA. I did, yeah, yeah. Had my, my dream job as of whatever, 10, 15 years ago. And that's what I, that's what I wanted to do. So I, I got a job uh, out of Iona working for Sony BMG. I worked a nine to five in the marketing department. I would take the train down to Midtown Manhattan, uh, fight my way through Midtown traffic and up to Sony BMG's office, 43rd floor. And I worked in the marketing department uh, nine to five. Then literally I would rush home. And from the hours of about 7 p.m. to like 2 a.m. every night, I would represent athletes. I would try to get them jobs overseas, basketball players. Um, We also represent some entertainers as well. And my goal was really just to build a client base and a revenue stream where I could afford to go out and do that on my own full time. 
Um, anyway, I learned some hard lessons along the way, like many young entrepreneurs do. Being a sports agent, at least, you know, in my experience, wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. Um, but, but, you know, through those lessons, it taught me a lot about how to build a business, um, taught me a lot of lessons about how to serve, you know, how, how to operate a service in a services environment. And then four or five years later, when I started NSA, took a lot of those lessons with me to, uh, to start. One second. I'm just, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to clip it. So don't worry about that. I just wanted to get my, my background lighting going. I forgot to get my whole, uh, my, it's early for me. You have to give me a break, man. It's, it's very early. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, listen, I can change it too, but right now it's Maple Leafs blue. That's not my team. Don't worry. But it's like, I think they have about the same winning streak as uh, the Rangers right now. No one's doing that hot in uh, the original <laughs> six. So <laughs> there you go. Um, very good. So, so that does tee it up. So, you know, you, you worked in marketing, uh, you worked as an agent. Now, what made you want to go into PR? Um, and, and what, what was the first iteration of N6A? Yeah. So, you know, fast forward then about four or five years later, after my, uh, my failed experiment, uh, experience trying to be a sports agent, I was 26, 27 years old. My wife was a public school teacher in Brooklyn at PS 205. I had, I had moved on to another agency or two, kind of was working my way up the corporate ranks in PR and marketing. And I, you know, I got the entrepreneurial bug. I just, you know, like many entrepreneurs, I looked at the agency environment and I just thought I could do it a little bit better. My naivety and my stubbornness kind of brought me to start the business. I'll never forget. It's, it's in my book. You know, the first lesson is never forget your survival days. I'll never forget you know, January 29, 2010. I just turned 27 years old. I'm sitting there uh, at a uh, diner in Yonkers, New York with my wife, who was about seven months pregnant at the time with our first daughter, Diana. We now have three. And I literally was you know, begging and pleading with her to let me to, uh, to let me start my own firm, N6A. And uh, she looked me in the eye and she said, you know, Matt, she said, I believe in you. I, you know, I believe in, in the vision. And she let me do it. And we started the agency the next day uh, out of my basement. I had no money. I had no income. I had no clients. My wife was on maternity leave. So literally at zero, zero money. Um, and the rest is history. You know, we started it out of our basement, just worked our butts off. Um, and then here we are 10 years later, you know, we've been in business uh, for a decade. We've had a really great run, uh, never taken any outside capital, as you mentioned. And it's just been a great, great journey. But it all started, you know, right there in a Yonkers diner 10 years ago with a crazy plea I made to my wife. That's, um, that's risky, uh, to say the least. <laughs> that's not, that's not um, you know, some people when they, when they start a business, it's a little bit uh, safer if they have like a great, great income or, you know, they're a little bit more comfortable or their wife isn't seven months pregnant um, and they're on maternity leave. So that's, that is very risky. Um, so walk me through as, as you built your business. Um, I, I understand at a high level what PR does, but let's just tee it up for people. When you say you're a PR firm, what problems are you actually solving? What's your niche that N6A solves for? Well, what we're trying to do is we, you know, historically PR has kind of lived as this footnote, Scott, in the marketing stack where it's been very difficult for brands to uh, measure, right? And they, brands kind of feel like they need a PR firm or they need some sort of PR presence, but they're not really sure why. They just know that they need to be positioned in a certain way in the marketplace. Obviously, brand perception, especially nowadays, 
is, uh, is incredibly important, probably more important than it's ever been. But it's always been very difficult to trace the value of PR to some sort of tangible business outcome. That's where, you know, that's where our model is a little different, and we're really focused on helping brands actually align uh, PR with a specific business outcome. That business outcome could be a revenue outcome like a lead. It could be a recruiting outcome, you know, getting ta- talent to want to work at your company. It could be an M&A outcome, you know, transactionally speaking. It could be a liquidity event in the form of an IPO. It could be a competitive outcome where you're just getting, you know, your butt kicked for whatever reason by your competition and you need to leapfrog them. Um, so that's what our model is focused on. It's really kind of tangible, measurable PR aligned with business outcomes, not PR just for the sake of PR. And and do you find that that has been um, somewhat of a, like, are you, are you sort of paving the way in that regard? Like, you are the, one of the main firms that actually does that? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, you, when you go into a, a meeting with a CMO, and you know, CMOs meeting with tons of PR firms and PR professionals, and every one of them is telling them that they need PR because they have to invest in their brand, but they're not making business for it. You know, we're going into those meetings and we're saying, you need PR not because you just have to invest in your brand, but you need PR because we're going to fight for it on the P&L. We're going to demonstrate you know, where it, where it's going to lead to incremental uh, outcomes, right, on the P&L. So that, you know, that really has kind of differentiated us in many respects. It didn't just happen overnight. I mean, it was a long, you know, it was a 10-year journey for us. And at about year six or seven in the journey, the light bulb went off and we were sitting in front of our buyers, CMOs, VPs of marketing, CEOs, and they were like, yeah, PR is great, but how can we, how can we show that it demonstrates some kind of business value and that's when we started to go through the rigor and discipline of trying to create a model. Again, with PR, you know, PR in our mind is the most valuable asset in the credit in the marketing stack because it's credibility. PR is credibility, right? And you can't do anything without credibility if you're a brand. You can't recruit talent, you can't sell your company, you can't sell your products. So our argument was that PR is the most valuable component of the marketing stack. It just wasn't getting the credit it deserved because these PR practitioners weren't finishing the race for their clients. They weren't taking the credibility assets and then, and then aligning them with some sort of business outcome. So that's been our approach to, you know, certainly over the past three or four years and we've, uh, we found it to be successful. So I, I appreciate that. And I think that that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's also very important in the age of transparency and the age of cancel culture and all of these things that are going on that businesses are very much above board and in line and in sync uh, with what the market is saying. Because if you're not, uh, you know, social media is a, is a mother right now. Like it's, they don't give you much mercy, right? So, and we're seeing that more and more, especially, especially what we're living through right now. And, you know, that's a whole other, it's a whole other conversation. And it's a great, it's a great point. But I also really want to dive into, um, uh, it's, I'll give. I'll let you decide, but I would love to go into some of the actual tangible lessons that you've built out. Because when I when I actually read your book, that's what that's where I saw a ton of value. Um, but I was just curious because you're in it. Do you have any any thoughts on like best practices for businesses that are trying to understand and climatize and acclimate to this cancel culture? Uh, you know, all all this social media pressure to do this thing, that thing. It seems like everything there's a every day there's a new thing that businesses are supposed to be doing to stay in touch and in tune and sensitive to to topical issues. So how do businesses sort of ride this wave? Because it's very difficult. I find I saw 
you know, we're, we're speaking about, we're speaking about, uh, obviously George Floyd protests and how businesses are, are dealing with that. And I saw something that was just horrible. It was, there was these influencers overseas. I don't know if there were any in North America, but they were, they were in solidarity of the black community painting blackface on themselves. And it was just like this, basically a PR disaster. And like, that's what I think businesses don't understand. They don't understand how to deal with all of these trending topics. They're not agile enough. And then you saw these influencers. This is just like, obviously the worst possible case of trying to do something positive, but the outcome being negative. Um, and it's just a point that I read last night. That's why it's top of mind. It was just insane that I saw that. And I, like people actually thought that was okay, but how do businesses um, keep up with all of the social pressures as a PR firm? What would you recommend they do? I guess tire a PR firm, but, but yeah, I think Scott. I think the I think the first thing is you have to stay true to your core values, and you have to live and breathe those values uh, in 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 the form of actions, right? Not in the form of words. And I think that that's sort of the golden rule for businesses. I I believe. And you know, to your point, I've been running a business for over a decade now. And look, it's a lot. It's a lot. There's a lot more peer pressure. Everything is under a microscope. Everything is much more public in terms of how you're managing a business now than it was a decade ago. So, uh, you, you know, my advice and counsel to business leaders right now is just to stay true to your core values. I think corporations, to your point earlier, um, you know, to your point earlier, corporations can be a platform for impact and change. And I think it's on corporations to do their part to impact change by doing, just by saying. And if you're a corporation, I can just speak to, you know, to our company at N6A, Scott, corporations can, you know, do in three ways. There's three ways I think they can do. Uh, number one is through time. Number, th- number two is through knowledge. And then number three is through money. And I think it's incumbent on corporations to do their part, um, you know, in each one of those areas. Time, you know, time is, at least in the services business, time is our most valuable resource, right? So, we can donate if we can give our time uh, to impacting social change. You know that's part of the responsibility, I believe, of of, uh, of a corporate citizen today. Number two is knowledge. So all of us as corporate leaders, um, on behalf of our entities, can lend something to help impact change in the form of knowledge. Our, you know, my business's uh, domain is PR and marketing services, so we have a specialized skill that we can contribute in some way to impact social change via our knowledge of marketing or PR or whatever it is. And then money, which obviously uh, depends on, you know, the size and scale of the operation, but in some way, shape or form, I think to the extent that, you know, companies can contribute their financial resources to impacting change, they should do that. And that's been our whole thing, not just with the recent um, environment in which we're operating, but, you know, all along over the past 10 years, you know, I always said to our employees, Scott, you know, we really want to be a company that backs up our words with actions. You know, we don't want to be a company that just says things. We want to be a company that does things. That's important. Yeah. Sometimes we have to, uh, you know, we have to avoid the temptation of peer pressure and to be the first one to post on Instagram or LinkedIn. Uh, but we, we're going to be the first ones to meet as a team and discuss how we're going to do things to actually impact change. I'm, you know, I'm good with that. Yeah, I think that's a smart, I think that's a smart way to look at it because I think there's a lot of, like I think you you know thinking through a, a lot of these these things that companies are doing are knee jerk and they're not actionable. So it's all great to be talk on social and be the loudest, but 
in six months, what have you, what change have you actually uh, invoked in your organization or for, you know, the community? Um, I appreciate that. I, I, you know, I don't, uh, I don't want to go too much into that, but I just think it's relevant because that's your, that's your, that's what you do. So I think that it's something that if somebody's listening and they're in a business environment, I think it's valuable to understand from a P from one of the leading PR firms, experts point of view is like those points you mentioned, but be, be, be in line with what your core values are, but there's other ways that you can contribute, but make sure that there's actually an action, an outcome. It's not just a superfluous or like high level or, you know, a vanity, a vanity uh, action, right? You want it to be true and, and impactful. Um, I'd rather yeah. be, you know, I'd rather be the company to that point. You know, I'd rather be the company that you never hear about that does things than the company you always hear about that does. Things. Yeah. Very well said. Um, very well said. Okay. So let's, let's break down, uh, let's break down some of the points in this book because, and I want to say this, when somebody writes a book, a lot of people write books, books are great. A lot of people write books, but sometimes, sometimes it feels very salesy if I speak too much about the book on the podcast. And that's, that's honest. And I don't like speaking too much about the book. I rather pull out the value in the individual. And then if they've written the book, like people are listening or watching, whatever, they can go get that book. And that's cool. But I, I really do want to focus on some of the things that you've mentioned in the book because the book is literally a list of lessons that you've learned over your career. So I don't care if you had written it in a book or not. I still want to get that out of you because that's what you've lived. And those are the, the struggles that you've, you've dealt with. So, um, so I guess, you know, there's a, there's a few really, really strong points that I really enjoyed. One of them being uh, working for your eulogy not your resume. I want to, that's a very strong statement. What does that mean? In your words, how can people use that to impact their own career, their own business? Sure. So Scott, um, eulogy over resume is one of the lessons on the 100 lessons in, in the book, as you mentioned. And I learned that one, and it's one of the most meaningful ones for me, you know, in my entrepreneurial journey. I learned that one. It was about 2014, 2015. I was about four or five years into uh, N6A at the time. And you got to, first off, you got to understand, you know, where I come from. And I mentioned my, my upbringing and my background. And, you know, I, I was very blessed growing up to have a family that totally you know, supported and loved me. And I was really showered with all of, you know, this amazing unconditional love. Um, but, you know, we never, and my wife too, you know, we never had generational money, you know, so to speak. And so this, this N6A entrepreneurial journey, like, you know, when we were making some good money the first couple of years in business, I mean, we achieved success, I, I would say pretty quickly in our, in our journey. Um, so around 2014, 2015, we were approached by some firms, larger firms and strategic investors that, uh, you know, wanted to buy us or invest in us in some cases. And financially, would have represented a significant, you know, really life-changing event. I wouldn't have been Mark Zuckerberg or Jeff Bezos, but, you know, for where I came from, you know, it was, it was certainly life-changing money. It would have changed the trajectory of, you know, my family, my children. Um, And it was the first time in my career where I was dealing with something like that. And obviously it's a good thing, right? Because your show kind of validates that you've built a great business and other people now are looking to invest or buy, you know, buy the firm. So obviously that was, incredibly, um, you know, exciting for me, but it also created this, you know, almost identity crisis because I loved the business and I didn't just want to give the business up and, you know, become, 
you know, become a vice president to the senior vice president to an executive vice president to the COO. And, you know, like that just wasn't really something that I was incredibly, uh, you know, motivated by at the time. So I had these two things pulling at me. You know, one was the lore of financial security and the other was the fact that I would have to give the business up and our identity and, you know, all of, all of that. And um, at that time, as I was literally, it was like, sign from above in my mind. You know, at that time, I heard a TED Talk by a, a uh, author you might have heard of named David Brooks. And David Brooks was talking about in this TED Talk the concept of people who live for their eulogies and people who live for their resume, two different types of people. And the vast majority of people tend to live for their resumes where they're living to set the next job up, the next opportunity up. And, and then there's a rare minority of people um, that live for their eulogy where they live not to set the next job up, but they're living today based on how they want to be remembered when everything is said and done. And he was talking about it in much more of a spiritual kind of personal context, obviously. As an entrepreneur, I sort of applied it to my business journey. But I remember hearing that speech and it really changed my life. And I remember saying, that's how I want to run my business. I want to run my business based on the eulogy, based on how we're going to be remembered when all is said and done. We don't want to be a brand that just kind of fades into oblivion. And Unfortunately, that comes with um, some really difficult sacrifices and decisions. In my case, it's been turning down the lure of, you know, investment capital and, uh, you know, and, and money many times. But, you know, I believe it's the right thing to do. And, you know, when I'm old and gray sitting on a porch somewhere and, you know, uh, smoking a cigar or whatnot, I really want people to remember our company for having built something of significance that um, doesn't just fade into oblivion. And that's kind of the eulogy concept. And I think we've been pretty true to that. Obviously, you know, there's, it's always difficult to live and breathe that every second. You kind of have to remind yourself that you're in it for the eulogy. But, um, you know, I think we've been done a pretty good job as an organization, uh, you know, of, of living that as much as we possibly can. I love that. And I think that, you know, it does something else. And you mentioned live for your eulogy, not your resume. I also think that that's more of a long-term vision. Obviously, that's a silly thing to say, but it's more of a long-term vision um, but that long-term vision, what I mean by that is it's it's driving an authentic outcome over the long term as opposed to a short knee-jerk reaction to a potential upside. You're 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 doing something for 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 some longevity, right? You if you live for your eulogy, if you live for what you're passionate about, if you take that and you and you compound it over years, trust you will have that resume portion as well. You will have success. But I think that keeping that in mind. I think that that sort of frames up how you should focus all your efforts, all your initiatives. They should be long-term and they should be, they should be something that you're, you aren't trying to capitalize on in the, in the short term. And I think that that's, that almost runs counter, unfortunately, to a lot of the, the way business is done today. But I think that the people that are most successful and happiest are people that have that patience and do look towards building something long-term that they can enjoy. Whereas if you have that, you know, I think it's been propagated by Silicon Valley, you know, short term returns, high ROI, get in, get out quick, you know, make 10x what you put in. That mentality is toxic to a lot of entrepreneurs. And that that mentality, not every not every entrepreneur, of course, it's nice to have a big exit, of course, but it's not the it's not the reality for most people. It's like if you look at the if you look at this, the, the subset of entrepreneurs that actually last 10 years it's very small and the ones that turn into unicorn exits it's like it's 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 infantile like go buy a lottery ticket 
it's much easier than starting a company that's going to go turn into a unicorn. So I think that having that mindset just sort of frames your expectations of, of the work and the effort that you have to put in. Because if you work for your eulogy, then you're no longer, you know, again, it's, just, it's the age old um, saying, like, it's not, a, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon, right? But it's the same yeah. thing. You're just, you're just taking it long term. And I, I like how you framed it because it, it, it's not only, not only it's not a sprint, it's a marathon, but it's, it's, it's not short term, it's long term and meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. No, Scott, I totally agree with that. In fact, those, you know, you're speaking to a couple other lessons in the book. And, and by the way, I, I just want to um, preface this by saying that the book is 100 lessons learned, which implies that I made mistakes. I mean, I made mistakes to learn all 100 of these lessons. So, yeah. you know about the eulogy approach. You know, when, when I was 26 or 27 years old, you know, I got punched in the face a lot along the way to, to learn these lessons. Uh, but you nailed it. I mean, look, uh, and these are other lessons in the book. I, I think consistency and longevity are the most overlooked qualities in anyone's career. And that's another lesson that I've learned the hard way. I've been surrounded, you know, I've been blessed to have been surrounded by so many clients and friends in my network that have had really successful um, exits, you know, short-term exits. And it took me about nine or 10 years to realize this, but that doesn't necessarily define success in one's career. I've seen, I've, I've seen a lot of companies have short-term successful outcomes, you know, successful quarters, successful years, you know, hit, hit the, um, the perfect, you know, timing when it comes to tech bubbles and VC capital investment. Um, and in their own right, they've had incredible, incredibly successful outcomes, but that's not necessarily in my mind what would define an, a successful career. I think the ones that have achieved consistent lo- uh, longevity, you know, consistent success, incremental improvements, and they've done that year over year over year over year for a very long time and played the long game. In my mind, those have been the ones that have been the most successful. And, you know, that, that, you know that's kind of been my experience. You know, the other thing on that is I have three words that I found are the sexiest in the business in the entrepreneur dictionary over 10 years. Um, number one is discipline. Number two is incrementalism. And number three is accountability. And the reason I say that they're sexy is because they seem like the least sexy uh, words, right? Like when you talk about discipline, you know, people want to want to vomit. When you talk about incrementalism, people, so a lot of people don't even know what that means. And then when you talk about accountability, that sounds like coach speak, but it doesn't sound like it's actually practiced. But as I've learned in my journey, the entrepreneurs who are disciplined, they have a rigor in place, they study, they take, they put the time in, they put the road work in, they truly focus on bringing a level of discipline and rigor to the way they operate their businesses are the ones that are able to achieve the most long-term success, the ones that focus on incrementalism too. It's not about, you can't go from being, you know, a, a new entrepreneur to, the, to, to a great entrepreneur overnight. The way you go from being a new entrepreneur to a great entrepreneur is through incrementalism, it's through making incremental progress, it's through holding yourself accountable, looking in the mirror, you know, plugging holes, doing that year after year, day after day, and over time you'll build a really special career. And then you know, on those along those lines, accountability too. You know, it's on me. I'm running our business. Ultimately, every decision that the business makes, some in some way, shape, or form, is a reflection of me. It rolls up to me, and that's true of all entrepreneurs out there. And they need to be very comfortable with that level of accountability. Um, if you hire somebody and that person makes a mistake, well, guess what? You know, by extension, you are accountable because you hired that person. And it took me a little bit of time um, to get comfortable with that level of accountability, but I think it's really important anyway. 
know, those are sort of the three most, the three sexiest terms in my mind. And it runs counter to what a lot of entrepreneur books might tell you, but that's been my experience, discipline, incrementalism. I, I think those are great. I think those are, and, and the way you explain them are, 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 I think that sort of frames up why they're so important. That's actually a word that I've never heard used before. Incremental, incrementalism, incrementalism. So it, it, when you say it, it makes sense, but I've never actually used it. I've never heard it used as a, a word that describes like a, the way you should approach business. So it's, it's a very valid. Um, I like that a lot. I like that. I like that word a lot. I'm going to start using that to be honest. I'm going to, I'm going to take that <laughs> because you always hear about, you know, the passion and, you know, the grit and all these other types of like entrepreneurial words, but incrementalism, it tees it up. I, I just say it because I've just never heard it. And that's why I love it because it just, again, it's about framing expectations. And if you can frame expectations as an entrepreneur properly, suddenly the whole process doesn't seem so scary. And I think that that's probably the, the best takeaway in, even in both of these, you're, you're, it's sort of the same thread is like patience. It's patience and understanding and celebrating the small wins, baby steps, incrementalism, working for the long term, like all these things. I'm starting, I'm starting to see a theme that is what's driving the success. And, and I think that some people, some entrepreneurs, you know, if I, if I look at the people that I know and they're not tech entrepreneurs or they're not marketing entrepreneurs, they could sell like a, they could sell a very um, boring product. They could sell, and I did air quotes because, you know, it's their life, but I mean, they could be selling something like, uh, I don't know, like just like a very, like not nothing too sexy. And if they stick with it and they celebrate the small wins and they, they manage that for, you know, 10. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it, each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. 
it's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information, but Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay, and what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch U.S.-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professionals to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text success, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. Thank you so much, Indeed, for sponsoring Success Story. For all business leaders out there, Indeed is a lifesaver. See, we're always driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You're going to ditch the busy work and you're going to use Indeed for scheduling, screening, messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed 
survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clary. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clary right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clary. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Plus years, you start to see that they, ha- they have massive amounts of success. And it's just because they've, they've kept with it over X period of time. And they didn't expect anything, you know, anything monumental. And I'm speaking about like very, you know, um, tactile widgets. Like if you're selling, for example, uh, I knew I, I used to work for a guy who sell, sold phone systems. I used to work in, in telecom. And he sold phone systems. And he, and he did that for like 20 years. And now he's massively successful. Very, very happy. But it was just like, it was grind. It was grind, 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 grind. And he did that for his, you know, for, well, for 20 years since, uh, since he graduated university. Um, and he's a really, really smart individual. But there was no major wins there. It was, like, he actually, he writes about some of the, the struggles and the stresses. And, and, and he, didn't, he didn't frame it in the term, you know, incrementalism or, or any of the things that you're mentioning now. But it's definitely, it's definitely a, a common thread with a lot of people that have seen success over, like, you know, X period of time. Yeah, yeah. No, so it's true. You're, you're, it's so right. I, I remember, Scott, just to put that into context, I remember when I started N6A, I actually looked, I have the business plan that I developed when I started N6A, and I look back on it once a year just as a, actually the same day on N6A day, January 29th, the day we decided to start our firm. I look back at the business plan and I kind of laugh because I look at the superlatives I used to develop the business plan when I was 26 years old. Like these were, these were the words I used that I thought were going to define success. It was sprint. It was fast. It was quick. And really, you know, when I was 26 or 27 years old starting our firm, I was you know, naive and I believed that we were just going to achieve immediate success. We were going to flip it. We're going to get, it was totally the resume over the eulogy mindset at that age. And now I look back at that 10 years later and I laugh because when all is said and done, when my career is, is over, I want to be defined by consistency and longevity. I, I don't really care if people, um, you know, if, I don't really care about short sprints and, you know, having a really successful outcome over a quarter or a given year. I want people to look back at my career and say, you know, that was a guy who uh, did things the right way. He learned from his mistakes. Um, he achieved success on a consistent basis year after year, got better, in, in, uh, improved incrementally. And I'll be good with that, you know, over the course of, I'm 37 years old, you know, over the course of, you know, the next 30 years, if you just focus on making incremental progress uh, year after year, you know, you can build a hell of a career. Um, yeah. And that's really where my mind is at. Right now. That's a really, that's a, that's a smart lesson to learn. Um, uh, another point that I saw that was really good. Uh, it's not, it's not personal, it's business. Um, why is that a lie? Why is that as, as per, as per your experience, why is that a lie? Because good luck telling any entrepreneur it's not personal. You know, it's, um, <laughs> that's true. I remember, I remember hearing when we started the business and I have a lot of very smart people who advise me in my network. Some of them are my family members, some of them close friends, some of them are business executives. And, you know, a lot of times you'll hear, Matt, you can't, look, it's not personal, it's business. It's not personal, it's business. But 
the truth is there's a connection, you know, Sir Martin Searle, who, who used to run WPP, you know, he said there's a founder's connection, something we could call the founder's connection, which he said was the closest thing that a male could feel to childbirth, you know, which is if you're a founder of a business, it becomes, you know, the business becomes a living, breathing organism in its own right. So how can you possibly grow, uh, nourish, cultivate uh, a living, breathing organism, which really is what, uh, which is really what a business is founder and not have a personal connection to it. So, you know, rather than just sort of pretend that business isn't personal, um, you know, I try to embrace it. And my business is very much a personal reflection of who I am. It's a personal reflection of my values. It's a personal reflection of, you know, how I want to treat people. Um, it's a personal refre- reflection of, um, you know, the mistakes that I've made in many cases. And, you know, I've just kind of come to terms with that. And obviously I've done it in a way, I try to do it in a way where it doesn't compromise my ability to make disciplined business decisions on behalf of the enterprise. But I'm not afraid to share uh, the, our personal beliefs and that core values, because frankly, a lot of times those are the reflection of the founders that started the company. And then as the company scales, the cool thing about businesses is that you know, success is best when it's shared. So as you scale your business, other people join, and then you learn from those people. And then the personal values and the, the personality of the business becomes about more than just the founder. Now it becomes about the people who have joined you on the journey. And that's really what, uh, you know, what we've learned. And when I talk about business not being, you know, business being personal, that, that's really what, what I mean. It, it is a personal reflection in my mind, who I am as an individual and many of the people who have chosen to join me in this crazy but fun journey over the past 10 years. I love that. And I also, I also appreciate that, like, the, the, the understanding that it's personal because I think that if somebody ever said to me, it's not business personal, it's more a reflection of the fact that they want to mask like a, a behavior or an action with like a broad stroke of, you know, I don't really care. <laughs> I don't really care about you, but I'm trying to win on my end anyways, and I'm being selfish. So I, I listen, business is rough and, and there's going to be people that are going to try and screw you over. And I'm sure you've experienced that many times in, in your I career. As, yeah, you learn it very quickly. And and one one takeaway, um, I, I've, I work with a lot of, uh, I used to work more, but I, I still get a lot of entrepreneurs reaching out and just for, you know, advice on, on this and that and the other thing and uh, how do I take my product to market and I'm looking for a co-founder and I'm looking, you know, I don't want to bootstrap. I want to get some VC money. And the best advice, you know, that I always give them is, is to look for, make sure you align with the right people um, and, and don't jump into bed with people too quickly. And uh, that could be co-founder, that could be wrong VC, it could be, you know, it could be dumb money that's not going to help you. It could be people that are, are uh, a little more predatory in, in their view of how to build business and exit. Like people, people drive business and people can ruin business too. And I think that as a first time entrepreneur, you're probably a little bit more naive to it, um, to, to how, to how uh, stressful or I don't want to say, you know, bad people can be, but be, people can be very bad. And if you've only ever worked under the umbrella of a corporation before, um, you'll never realize it until you go out on your own, you try to build your own thing. So yeah, no, I agree with you, yeah. Scott. You know, yeah. I, I, I totally agree with you. I, I, I would say about 98% of the mistakes I've made over the past 10 years have to do with people. And specifically, it has to do with one of the four uh, following areas, people I hired, people I didn't hire, people I fired, and people I didn't fire. You know, so what, what's the common thread there? It's people. And yeah. then 
that I handle myself in any one of those four uh, examples, one of those four categories, you know, that's that the, my greatest mistakes and regrets usually have to come with, you know, usually revolve around people front and center. Um, and uh, that I'm sure that that is the experience, not just with myself, but of many listening to this. I think you also hit on a very important point, which has to do with cynicism. And, you know, that's another lesson that I learned quickly. I have a lesson in my book called The Man Who Slept in the Conference Room. And it has to do with cynicism. You know, I was like a month or two into business and I found out that there's some bad people out there in business. And you have to, you have to sort of scrutinize things a little bit more closely than, you know, than you're used to. You have to vet things properly. And, you know, the, the man who slept in the conference room, we had this guy who, uh, you, you know, who positioned himself as like a super, super successful titan of industry, you know, out, out in Europe. And he was working out of the shared office we were in at the time. And anyhow, long story short, I, I totally fell for his uh, pitch, you know, hook, line and sinker. And he convinced me to provide pro bono services and get behind him and all this philanthropy he was doing. Anyway, long story short, it turned out that this guy was a total fraud. And he wound up in our conference room. He couldn't even, he said he had this big penthouse on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. It turned out that, you know, he couldn't even afford rent. He was sleeping in our conference room and all these kind of crazy things. And it, it just taught me a valuable lesson very early in my business career that there's more, there's more than meets the eye, right? And you've mm -hmm. got to vet properly and, People who say they're on top of the world sometimes uh, are, are not, and you really need to do a good job of making sure that you're vetting things properly. Yeah, very good. That's a that's a crazy story. I've never I've never I've I've heard of you know you know you get into bed with the wrong founders or people don't work as hard or they don't pull their weight. You know you have some bad VC intentions or what? But I've never heard of somebody uh, sleeping in your conference room because they don't have them. We were, we were working rent-free out of this shared office space in Midtown, and it was an amazing gesture that one of our early clients gave. He was, he was like, Matt, you know, keep your overhead down. We've got tons of office space. Come work out of our shared office. So he was incredibly uh, gracious. And then another guy who was working out of this office was this guy that I mentioned earlier, and you know, he, he immediately positioned himself as this super successful titan of industry had like three or four exits in the billions of dollars and all this kind of crazy stuff. And he used that to really, and I was a first time, very impressionable first time entrepreneur. So he used that to uh, convince me to provide services for free. And then anyway, turned out that we wound up, something didn't pass a sniff test about a month or two after all this happened. I started doing some research, found out he was a total fraud. And then when we were moving to our first real office downtown in Tribeca from Midtown, we were cleaning out the conference room. And there was like this, one of my interns actually saw this uh, pillow and uh, it was like pajamas or something in one of the nooks of the conference table. It was like, what, what the heck is that? And we opened up the nook and it turned out that uh, it was the, the clothes of this guy who said that he was so, so successful. And we found out later that he had been sleeping in the conference room because he couldn't afford rent. So there you go. That's uh, interesting. That's, you have to be careful, man. You have to be so careful. I've never, you know, you have to be so careful. I've, I've never experienced anything like that before, but like I was doing some independent consulting and, and you have to, I, because I, I can't, I can't, I don't want to talk about me, but I, I did come from big business and I, I experienced that when I went out on my own and it was never that extreme, but it was definitely just like, it was more like to do with, 
you know, you have to manage your expectations. How do you, how do you get people to pay their invoices after you've done the work? Like the things that you don't have to worry about, like that uh, people don't, don't respect you as a, as an, as a consultant or a business owner, like these types of regular businessy things, you know, it's just, it's just operating a business and you expect that everything should go easily. If you set up a project and you do the work, if you have, I guess that's why people get prepaid and whatnot. But as a new entrepreneur, as somebody just going out on my own and doing my own thing several years ago, um, that was an issue that I ran into and how to how to value my own time properly because you know you jump at these deals and then you do the work and then people aren't paying um, and then that's just a, that's a, a small a small fraction of of somebody you know committing fraud and sleeping in your conference room and whatnot. But still, it's a these are things you don't deal with when you work for somebody, right? You just, it's not, it's not your problem. You have people that take care of that, especially when you work in like, you know, a large company. So, yeah. You know, yeah. Scott, you know, it's an interesting point that you bring up too on that is that I think that underscores the silver lining in all of this is that when you find good people, hold on to them. And that's another lesson that I've learned. You know, there's a lot of bad people in business, unfortunately. And you're right. A lot of what you just hit on are signs of value. You know, do you pay your vendors on time, right? Do you you know, do you, do you treat people the right way? You know, are you diligent in follow-up or do you only follow up with people when you want something from them in return? Like all of these are usually signs of character and mm -hmm. ultimately some sort of connection to the values of the enterprise. Yeah. Business is personal because it's usually a reflection in some way, shape or form of the personal values of the collection of people who are running those. Uh, but the, the silver lining is that there's also some great people out there. And when you find good people, Hold on to them, keep them. And a lot of the mistakes I talked about, the mistakes I made in my career usually have to do with people. A lot of the mistakes too have to do with losing people that were good people that, you know, I, I, I wish I could have kept if I would have done you know, a thing or two probably differently. Um, and, you know, good people lead you to great places. That's very true in business. That's very true. And I think no matter where you are in your career, whether you're an entrepreneur, uh, an entrepreneur or an entrepreneur, surround yourself with good people. And uh, because there's a lot yeah. of bad people. So when you find a good one, hold on. I love it. That's it's a good uh, good takeaway. Um, and and the last the last point that I did want to I want to touch on. Um, I've gone through a ton of stuff in the in the book and a lot of really good stories. So I appreciate it. But there's one more point. Um, uh, you mentioned uh, entrepreneurs are never self made. What does that mean? Because that's going to uh, that's going to piss off a lot of people that are saying, yeah, I did the work. I, I made myself, you know, I built myself up. So what do you mean by that? And I understand, I, I understand slightly what you're saying, but I want, I want to hear from you. So what do you mean entrepreneurs are never self-made? So I learned that, you know, I was, again, when I started our business, I was very naive, Scott. And one of my goals was, and you know, it's very personal. A lot of the lessons in the book, obviously are very personal. It's a journey through 10 years of my entrepreneur uh, experience and all the mistakes that I made and whatnot. And when I started the business, you know, I thought that I was going to build myself into this self-made millionaire very early in life before age 30. That was one of the goals I had set for myself. And, you know, fortunately through, you know, hard work, I was able to achieve, you know, my financial goal um, before the age of 30, which for me was like a huge, um, huge accomplishment. And it, it meant a lot. And I, and I remember thinking to myself, wow, like I'm a self-made guy and here I am. And then I heard a speech by Ken Langone, you know, who was the founder of Home Depot. I was about 30, 31 years old or something like that at the time. And he talked about how there's no such thing. And he's a billionaire. So he's a Home, Home Depot co-founder. Yeah, yeah. Really the, you know, the um, epitome of the American dream. 
And he talked about how he didn't view himself as self-made. And I was like, well, how is that possible? This is a guy, here's a guy from Long Island, you know, right around the area. I grew up, uh, working class family, built himself, you know, into all of this success without really, you know, any kind of head start in life. And he doesn't view himself as self-made. And then he explained why. And when he explained why, I was like, oh, absolutely, that makes perfect sense. The reason you're not self-made is because you're the byproduct of so many people in your career who have helped you and they paid it forward. And they might not necessarily pay it forward in the form of money, but they pay it forward in the form of something that's much more valuable than money. That's time, that's support, and that's care. And that's sort of when I, you know, that's when the light bulb went off and any sort of, you know, small level of success I had achieved at that point in my career, I realized was not the result of my own doing. It was more the result of just being blessed with great people around me that believed in me, supported me, donated their time, contributed their support. Um, and that's why I was self-made. I wasn't self-made because I had any kind of brilliant, you know, brilliant formula. I was self-made because I was just the byproduct of all these great people who believed in me. I think that's an important lesson. I think it should help um, any entrepreneur, anyone who's on their career journey, put, keep things in perspective. Any success you achieve, obviously, you know, it's on you to get there, but you're not going to get there unless you have the support of others. And I think that uh, the the one thing, if I can add on to that, is to keep that in the back of your mind so you stay humble too. So you do stay humble as you grow. Because you mentioned, like, it's, it's people that drive it. It's people that drive your success. And if you ever forget that, that's when, that, that, I think that's when you could make poor decisions about people that are good people because you don't understand how these people got you to where you were. And if you do want to ever get to the next level, it's still going to be those, those people, mentors, employees, uh, peers. It doesn't really matter. There's a whole bunch of people that impact and, and help your success. But I think that those I people do have to, at, yeah. Look at what we were talking about earlier about the survival days. And when I was sitting in that diner in Yonkers and I asked my wife for her blessing mm-hmm. and she said, start your business. I wouldn't, she would have said, no, there goes my, there goes my dream. Right. So, yeah. Um, and she hasn't contributed, you know, my wife has contributed everything to me, um, since, um, you know, this whole thing started, my journey started, but she hasn't contributed any money, you know, but, but she contributed to my mind, the most important, uh, gift of all, which is belief and support. So how could I possibly be self-made if she didn't make the decision to let me start the journey? Very good. Um, so they're really good. Those are really good lessons. Um, I hope that, uh, people that are listening, if, you know, if they are, um, if they are entrepreneurs or like I said, you know, entrepreneurs, people looking to grow in their career could have a side hustle, could just want to, you know, get to the next level of, of their career. Um, I, I would suggest reading this book because these are all very, very, um, personal stories. And I've worked with, I've personally worked with a lot of entrepreneurs, but I've also, you know, gone through different stages in my career. And I can say that, um, a lot of the books will, will, a lot of the books will speak about, I guess the tactics or the high level, but they don't get into the, the, some of the negatives or the, I guess the, the, the parts of being an entrepreneur or, or business or life that are a little bit less fun to deal with. Um, and you can learn a lot about strategy and tactics in a lot of books that people, you know, write about, about, you know, marketing and sales and culture and management and leadership, but it, they don't always go into the, the negatives because that's something that's hard to write about. And it's very personal. And a lot of people don't like to share those stories. And you only see, sometimes you only see those stories shared when somebody's like already like 
you know, a billionaire and, and they'll write a, they'll write a, a, a memoir of all the things they've gone through in their life. Um, but I, I really, I really appreciate that. And you know, this is, this book is, is really good for highlighting the real life experience of an entrepreneur. Actually, another book that I've actually read that is similar to this is like the hard thing about hard things, which is also very much like uh, raw. It's, I guess the best word is raw. It's just like, it's not, it's not bullshitting. It's not, you know, it's not fake. It's not phony. It's just like, this is what you're going to have to deal with. If you want to go and, and really achieve greatness, there's a lot of benefits, there's a lot of positives, but there's a lot of things you have to keep in mind, not drawbacks, not always negatives, but just things like you have to keep in mind. This is what people have been through before. This is what you're going to have to deal with. And I think that that's really probably the most valuable lessons you can ever give someone. Just like the reality of, of what it is to build your own thing. But um, anyways, I wanted to, I wanted to, uh, I've been speaking way too much on this podcast, so I apologize, but I get, I get really excited about some of the topics that you're talking about. Um, I wanted to, I wanted to give you the floor. Are there any other lessons inside this book that, uh, that you thought would be really good? You know, we sort of spoke about a ton of stuff, but is there any, anything else that you sort of learned that we didn't touch on that you'd want to bring up or? Is this, is this good? It's your, whatever, floor is yours, man. <laughs> we still have about 88 lessons to go. So, <laughs> so when, when, uh, when we're all, you know, pandemic's over, uh, like New York's like my second home. So uh, we'll do like a, we'll do a sit down and we'll do a, we'll do an in-person. We'll go, we'll, we'll have like a series of, of, you know, <laughs> going through your life, going through these lessons, probably understanding all the shit you went through that just <laughs> that you, it's going to be a little bit uh, traumatic for you reliving all these experiences again and, and speaking through them. But um, I think it's really good for people to hear out. I guess I'll uh, just share two real quickly. You know, one is a practical, yeah. one is sort of a practical tip that I learned that I think your audience can apply in their yeah. day-to-day, whether they're entrepreneurs or intrapreneurs or just sort of figuring out what they want to do in their career. And then one is a little bit more um, personal the tactical one is I, I call it foul shots, and I've been taking what I call foul shots for my whole career. And the, the concept of foul shots is based on, you know, the late Kobe Bryant. I remember hearing about his just um, incredibly insane work ethic and how he would stay after practice every day, and he would shoot hundreds and hundreds of shots, and he wouldn't allow himself to leave practice until he hit, I think it was like four or 500 shots, something insane. And talking about incrementalism like we did earlier, the thought being, Scott, that he's not going to go from being a you know, 38% to a 48% shooter uh, overnight, right? Those, those, the difference of one day of taking those shots is not going to make him a uh, superstar. But what is, is, gonna, is the discipline of taking those shots every single day, and over the course of the year in aggregate, those shots will make him a better shooter and thus a better player. So I thought it was just such a cool way of, um, you know, and I wanted to adopt that into my own repertoire and work. So I did what I started. I, I started taking what I call foul shots. And every day, I've done this since I was about 21 or 22 years old, I would just reach out to somebody. And I would, it could be somebody that I read about in the newspaper. It could be somebody that I had seen on TV. It could be somebody that one of my friends told me about. And I would just reach out to them for no really selfish reason or commercial gain. It was just someone who interested me. And I said, you know, hey, Scott, read about you in this magazine, really inspired by your journey, um, thought, you know, A, B, and C about your journey was really cool, would love to grab a coffee, something like that. Anyhow, I did that about anywhere about, you know, five to 10 of those per day when I started my career. And I've done it every single day for my entire career. And the thought being similar to the Kobe work ethic is that, 
if I reach out to five new people every day, probably not going to make a difference on a day-to-day -day basis, but that means that's 25 people per week, it's 100 new people per month, it's 1,000 new people per year. I've been in business for 10 years now, that's 10,000 people. And you know, even if 20% of those people respond to you, it changes the course of your career because you meet new people that lead you to great places. And the whole thought is that if you take those foul shots every day, it's the repetition that will really impact your career. Um, so that's one you know, piece of advice, and it's a lesson in the book. And I actually share in the book foul shots I've taken and how they've changed the whole direction of my career. They've led me to uh, game-changing and you know, life-changing financial opportunities. They've brought me to new friends you know, that to, you know, to this day hold a very you know, special place in my heart. And I would have never had those opportunities if I didn't take foul shots. I love that. Yeah. Another lesson, and I think this is the most important one, is just I mentioned earlier, good people lead you to great places. That's a lesson I mentioned in the book, and that, that's the most important one, I think, to me, because your career, just like your life, is not a straight line. It's a curvy line, very unpredictable. You're going to get knocked on your butt so many times, and um, it's really how you respond to that adversity, I think, that counts. And you just want to go through those curves with people who you respect, people who you care about, and people who respect you. So. If there's anything you know, I've learned, any small lesson I've learned in the past 10 years, it's been that the better the people um, that I've surrounded myself with, the better places I found myself uh, you know, in and going to. And um, that's, that's a lesson that I think is really important. And if I was starting my career out today, knowing what I know now, I would tell myself, you know, don't worry so much about money. Don't worry so much about you know, the name of the company you're working for, whose name is on the door worry about the people that you're going to be dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis because usually the better the people you're around the better the places you're going to find yourself that's great um that that really does uh, tee up uh most of the questions like that i had and one of the questions that i usually ask is what's the one life lesson that you would tell your younger self would that would that be it would that be the the one that you would probably tell your younger self if you could out of everything that you've written yeah. about and learned over your career yeah, that would be one. And, you know, I also talk, yeah, that would probably be the, the most important one. I think we said the other thing is, you know, losses, learn from losses. You're going to lose so many times in business, learn from those. Each time you lose, you know, force yourself to study the losses to, you know, the more you study your losses, the better you can improve in the future. Um, and also I think, you know, celebrate winning moments. That's another thing I talk about in the book. I, I probably have some regret. I definitely have some regret over the past 10 years for not celebrating winning moments as much as I should. Like, this is a beautiful journey. Your career is a beautiful journey and you're going to have a lot of winning moments too, you know, financially, you know, winning moments, you're going to have, you know, winning uh, client outcomes. You're going to meet people and, you know, share in winning moments together. And I think um, a lot of my regret comes from probably not spending as much time sharing in those moments and celebrating those moments with people who have contributed to them with me. And, and, I, and I think that's something I would probably tell very good. Very good. Um, and the last question I have would be, uh, what would be a resource? It could be a podcast, a book, an audible. It could be a person that you would recommend people go check out if, uh, if you were going to say, this is where I learn, or this is where I go to, um, you know, improve myself. What would that resource be? Well, look, you know, I don't mean to skate around that question, but, but, uh, I, you know, you have to be a, constant consumer, I think, of, of intelligence and media. And I know that I'll pull little bits and pieces from so many different 
podcast, and, you know, one of them being yours, by the way, Scott, and, you know, so many others. And I think <laughs> You don't have to plug my podcast, but I appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah. and, and I think, you know, look, I think that you should really apply those data points um, in your own way. And, you know, I just read, for example, I just read Ray Dalio's book, Principles. You know, they're, you know, that's like an 800-page book or something. And I love the book, by the way. Am I going to apply all 800 pages of it to my journey? Probably not. But am I going to take certain elements of that and get better and apply it? For sure. And then, you know, Scott Galloway, who is a longtime, uh, you know, mentor and client, you know, of mine, who's now, you know, now has a great podcast with Harris Swisher. You know, I've learned a lot from him as well. Anyway, you know, my, my, my approach to consumption is just you have to be addicted to information and data and then consume as much as that as you possibly could and then put your own spin on it. You know, it's you to be the judge and jury of that. And how you yeah, that's, no, I think that's, I think that's a smart answer. It's not skating away or skating around it at all. It's a, it's a very smart way to look at, at, at consumption of knowledge and, and improving yourself. And I, that's, that's probably more useful than if you can tee that up for somebody and they can internalize that concept, that's going to be more useful than name dropping a book for sure. Um, I think that people just have to get, uh, get into the mindset of always wanting to learn and always being uh, curious. I think that that's probably the best way to approach life. And if you can, if you can sort of, if, if you can make that part of what makes you happy and, and, and something that provides, you know, satisfaction, like learning and improving and, and curiosity and taking all those different data points from all these different sources and having the mind also to filter like filter what's relevant to you and how to apply it. You can listen to, you know, a hundred very smart PhD billionaire, uh, you know, unicorn startup founder, CEO, but understand the lesson that, and that's kind of really what this podcast is all about. Like there's a, there's a wide range of people that I bring on here, but I try and draw out like the tactical um, from each one of them relative to what they've done in their career. And hopefully somebody listening can understand that message as well and take that one piece from that one individual and apply it to, to what their instance or their particular set of circumstances is. Um, that's really the best way to learn. That's how I learn. And I think that's, that's very, very smart. Uh, well said. Um, how do, how do people get in touch with you? Where do they go to, you know, check out your book? I'm assuming Amazon, but outside of that, uh, you know, where's, where's your, your website, N6A's website, LinkedIn, whatever. So uh, check us out on N6A.com. You know, that has all information about our clients and our corporate culture. If you're interested in a career with N6A, uh, reach, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Uh, so reach out to me. Find me on LinkedIn if, uh, if I can be helpful at all. Obviously, for your listeners, um, you know, if they, need, uh, if they need discounted access to the book, we're happy to do that. In fact, just given the uh, we, it's so funny, Scott, when, we, when I published the book, it was like the week before COVID started. You talk about timing. It's not, it's not a good time. So the beginning of the next book, which I want to write a book ten, the next 10 years, um, based on the second kind of 10 years of my entrepreneurial career, it's going to start literally the first chapter is going to open up and then, you know, and then the world change, which is literally where, you know, the, the first day of the second chapter of my career, I guess, began. But um, when we went into COVID, we made a decision to donate all uh, profits and proceeds from the book um, to COVID relief funds. So any, um, you know, any book sales are going straight to. That's all for today. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of the Success Story Podcast. You can download or stream this podcast wherever podcasts are available, including iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and many others. You can also watch this podcast on YouTube. If you haven't already, please subscribe and share this podcast with your friends, family, coworkers, and peers. 
please leave us a rating on iTunes. It takes about 30 seconds as it allows other people to find our podcast and lets our amazing guests reach even more people with their message. And remember, any rating is fine as long as it contains five stars. I'm Scott Clary from the Success Story Podcast, signing off. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it, each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information. But Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone, and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeletemecom slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story, too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. 
This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay, and what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch U.S.-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professionals to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text success, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. Thank you so much indeed for sponsoring Success Story. For all business leaders out there, Indeed is a lifesaver. See, we're always driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You're going to ditch the busy work and you're going to use Indeed for scheduling, screening, messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clary. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clary right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clary. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. 